episode of the Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and with me, as always, is my other co-host, Aaron. Hi, hello, and howdy. Good morning, good morning. This week, we are talking about episode six, and things have finally picked up. If you were complaining about the show being slow, well, this episode is for you, because this is the episode where things actually begin to happen. And and I say begin to happen obviously not in a narrative sense because we're we're pretty big fans so far of the slower world building that we've gotten, but there are battles <laughs> and fights which we have not had a ton of so far in the series and this one definitely flips the script on that. Aaron, I wanted to approach this one a little bit differently, I think, because in the past we've always just kind of gone by storyline, but for this episode, it's basically one storyline. It all takes place in the Southlands, save like one scene on the boats and one shot of some Numenorians riding across, <laughs> you know, a big field on their horses. And then everything else is pretty much in the Southlands. So I figured we can kind of just take this as one big episode because it all deals with the same thing. There's no Harfoots. There's no dwarves. There's no Celebrimbor, probably to your liking. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. This episode is action-packed, full of momentum swings. I personally absolutely loved it. I had a blast overall. What was your kind of big picture takeaway from this one? Like you said, you know, a lot happened. So I guess like the biggest takeaways for me were the the movement and the interconnectedness of this episode within the confines of those singular story paths. So for the most part, like we own the reason why we only have one storyline to follow for this episode is because it connects all of the stories and action points within the Southlands. So um I thought there were some strong moments. There were some not so strong moments. Um, I think that a lot of the show in general comes down to personal preference. And I think that it comes down to what you want from not only a Lord of the Rings style show, but a fantasy show in general. Um, I thought that this had a little bit of something for everyone. And I thought that was it was an overall strong episode from an action standpoint. From a script standpoint, I thought it was a little lacking. Um, I thought there were some moments where it was a little cringe for me to watch um, some components of character that didn't make sense to me personally. But overall, I thought it was, I mean, it was like you said, it was a solid packed episode full of a lot of bits and pieces that are starting to really push the story forward versus giving us a baseline to work off of. Yeah, extremely well said. I would agree with every word that you just said. I had some sections that I kind of even rolled my eyes a little bit at, I'll be honest. But for the most part, overall, I just really appreciated the movement and the momentum and where we're headed. And the, and I mean, it makes sense. It's an eight episode series. Things have to happen. So well, eight episode season, or I'm sorry, eight episode season. Yes. So by the season finale, just in general, knowing how storytelling works, like we've got to build to some sort of big event that is going to be a cliffhanger that is going to leave us in a place where we're curious about what's going to happen at the start of the next 
season. So, I mean, it it makes sense. I think there's also something to be said for the fact that it is a first season. So you had to know that at least half of the season was going to be dedicated to baselining. I did think that it was interesting how many callbacks to the movie I felt in this movie. I mean, in this episode there were. um, I felt like there were some heavier leanings on that type of fan base that might be watching is people that wanted to see calls to, you know, Rohan or the, uh, what is it? Is it the Rohirrim? The... They definitely look like the beginnings of the Rohirrim. Yeah. Yes. In fact, um, I thought it was them at first. I was like, is that Numenorians or did Rohan already exist? Yeah. That was a little bit Yeah, I definitely felt like yeah. it was, it was a mix between the Rohirrim and the, uh, the scene where Gandalf is leaving that, leading them into Helm's Deep, like down that hill. Um, so like there were, there were moments like that, that I thought were really strong choices that were very intentional pulls to bringing that like trying to close some of those circles with giving it a beginning all right well let's start with the opening scene as far as i wrote down in my notes i'm assuming this was the opening scene it was close to the beginning and that was we started in the southlands and adar is marching his orc army plus waldrig uh, (laughs) into the tower, the watchtower area. He's just because, the one lone, like plus Waldrig. Well, I, I he's actually the, he's the, the post-it notes, note. <laughs> I made a note, and I was like his his orc and human army, and then I actually rewound it and watched that like motivational speech he was giving to them, and I couldn't find any other humans. Like it, it is, I think it's just. I mean, th- there may be. I, well, we know later there were humans, but in that moment, it's really just showing us Waldrig, and I just. It's intentional. Like it, it, it's it, pretty funny. It looks very intentional now that we know how the episode, you know, go falls through. Um, but yeah, yes. no, it, it's very, it's a very intentional choice filming wise. But that scene of the actual like motivational speech was very interesting. It was, and he seems to be more of a leader, and and really coming into that role of father of the orcs more and more. Every episode, we got more information about that in this episode later on versus someone who is strictly just using them as battle fodder. Like, it it feels more like a kind of typical army might feel for a nation um, or a race than we've seen orcs be used in the past, right, by like Saruman and how they've been treated. So I I really enjoy that little change. Uh, I'm curious to see how that continues to develop. But he marches them into the tower, which seems to be deserted. But no, it's not deserted. We have an Arondir ambush. And it's him by himself. And my first thought was, yay for tactics, because I love a good setup. They suck the orcs in. He ends up using his fancy elf agility to shoot off this some sort of device that was or holder that was keeping the tower up unless the tower collapse and fall killing most of the orcs that had come in. I just thought it was a really cool scene and part of what sets up the really engaging momentum swings back and forth because this episode felt like at that moment the humans had won and I was really excited. I was like, man, Bronwyn took the humans, they went off to the village, like they're all safe. Arondir is like gonna take out most of the orcs or whatever. They're, it's just awesome. And then, of course, we find out later they didn't. But I really enjoyed the beginning of that. And I like getting to see more. I just like it anytime that Arondir is using his bow, frankly. 
Yeah, uh, I'll be honest. I thought that the setup was a little weak in my opinion. Like the more that I looked at it, the more that I like I analyzed that I'm like, okay, from a logistical standpoint, and I understand that using that word in almost any fantasy setting is just setting myself up for failure. But like from a logistical standpoint, one, that army was massive. So like you cutting down that tower and only killing who was or potentially like having it land on who was inside the keep at that point in time seems slightly short-sighted um wouldn't it have been better to wait till everybody was in there and then knock the tower off the other direction and destroy the only bridge that gets them to the tower and then nobody can get out of there like I, I I look at I look at those those moments where I'm also like, OK, so we know that the tower collapsed inside and like destroyed the majority of that little like collective area. Right. What we're watching, though, is we're only seeing a portion of the army come into that keep before he starts firing at that tower. So I'm also sitting here like, OK, how many of them would he have actually you know, been able to destroy in that moment? And you also right. see that the tower is literally right on top of Adar. So how does he get out like you? It just it leaves like a really big question mark there. Like you don't see him like, you know, grab an orc and, you know, move them out of the way or dive. Like all you see is him just like look up at it and it's like, oh, you know, London Bridge is falling down and then that's it. So like I just I felt like that was a little too open ended. Like we obviously knew that he was going to survive because he has to, but I just felt like the setup of like the corresponding events that go with it was just a little bit on the weaker side. But I do like that they decided to instead of run, they went back to their home. Um, so I thought that was a really strong choice because they were literally like, no, like this is we know these lands, we know where we can hide, we know where our strengths and our weaknesses are. Like they chose to stand and fight on their terms and their territory versus this keep that, you know, they really had no say in no so i just I, felt like that was like it was just a little bit weaker on in my opinion like i like i'm i'm with you where i love a good setup i love you know people walking into something unsuspectingly and then all of a sudden you see how they're you know trying to flip the script i just felt like this wasn't the strongest example of that that's fair that's fair i i think for me it works better on the whole because we know that he is simply delaying the army he is trying to take out a chunk of the army he is buying them time to get back to the homes and essentially create their own version of an ambush. So they are taking what Adar thought would be kind of a sneak attack and turning it into what they hope to be double ambushes and be lying and waiting, ready to protect their homes when the orcs ultimately come after them there. I, li I like what you just said. Like that's what they're familiar with. That's where they know. And if you're going to go down, you know, go down defending your own actual home. Home and land ownership is such a an important thing to the human process. It's vital, right? And and so that's what means something to them. And so they're going to go down defending that. And I really appreciated that. I know I, keep, I know I keep looking to my right, but it's because I literally have the episode up on my phone because I was like, I wanted, oh, I, I wanted, it. I wanted to look at that because I remember the setup of how the like the you see all the lanterns or like the torches that all of his army mm -hmm. are taking in there. And I remember watching it like cascade down, but I couldn't remember which direction it was going in because then all of a sudden, like I said, you see all of them come back like and it's like, OK, so how much did we actually get rid of in that moment? Yeah, I, I, the more when you said that, it actually clicked more than what I think I, I said in the beginning here. It's really not about taking out the orc army. It's about creating a diversion. It's about yeah. causing chaos. Disruption. And yeah. building time for them to get away because these are really connected pieces of their plan. He, we also see Arondir try to destroy the hilt 
um, which obviously can't because it's something related to Sauron. Therefore, it's got this power to it. And so he decides we're going to hide and bury it instead, which will come into play later on. The humans, on the other hand, they get to the village with Bronwyn. I love this section, the setup here. Like you said, call back to the movies. This is a total Helm's Deep moment here. Women and children into the buildings, bar the doors, you know, we're anybody who can fight out here with a pitchfork type. I mean, granted, it's also like any fantasy movie. Like it's not just Helm. Like it, it's very, it's very well, I know, called but back it's reality. to that. But yeah, like, what it's else reality. Do? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like that's how it would go down, I think. You know, I mean, that, I think that's how people would attempt for it to go down. I, I think, you know, we're probably in a, some of the women stayed and fought. I was going to say, I, but, I think that there were several women that did stay and fight, which I liked because I, I was like, it was literally like, Bronwyn, you're telling them to do what you're not going to do. So if any woman could fight, like, why would they not want to help, you know, defend their children and or partners? Um, so I did like that there was like a little bit of the, that switch there. I like the speech that she gives. She says the phrase new life in defiance of death, which I think is a really flowery poetic thing and is also something that Adar said earlier in the episode to his orcs which I found pretty interesting I, I didn't really dive much deeper into that I, but it makes me wonder like where are these things coming from as far as I, where is the saying coming from I think the the really important thing that I took away from this episode is that everybody wants the same thing and both are going through like very different paths to get it. One of them is trying to take the easy path, which is, you know, in these stories, it's always turning to, you know, evil magic or, you know, something along those lines. That's how you get things the easy way, um, whether or not they're earned or justified versus people that are wanting to follow the light and fight for these things. So it's like you're you're seeing the reason I think that you're seeing the parallels in the inspirational speeches between the two armies is because one of them is willing to fight. The other one is just willing to run down and is like, we'll just rebuild it later. So like they're like Bronwyn's working to preserve life and then to let it regrow itself versus Adar wants to just completely raise it to the, I'm, I'm going to raise Minas Tirith to the ground. Like literally like mm -hmm. wants to burn it all and then build something new. Now, granted, if you burn it, like the soil is significantly more fertile. So I get it from like an ecological standpoint, but from an actual like functionality of where you're seeing the duality between what they both want, it's the same thing. It's just two different paths to get to it and which one is the quote unquote right or wrong path. Yeah. And who it's for. I mean, that's the whole thing with what Adar's plan is. The whole concept of this episode or is the bigger picture here is that he is working toward creating a Mount Doom explosion so that when it erupts, it will ruin the land. He wants to ruin the land because he wants his orcs to have somewhere that they can live because they are not able to sustain life in the same way in the way that the humans and the elves are right. They don't want sunlight and beautiful grass. They need that kind of barren landscape to thrive. And so he is trying to create a landscape in which his people can legitimately survive better, just like humans, like you said, and they're I using, feel, we, we yeah. I feel like this episode actually like made me have empathy, which I thought was really interesting um, is I did. I, I was literally sitting there. I'm like, don't they deserve that? Like they exist. He Nobody says can that. change the Doesn't fact he that, say that. Yeah. But that's what I'm saying is like, he's not wrong. 
Like, obviously, yeah. I mean, similar to Thanos, like, obviously, your methods about going it are absolutely effed up, and you should probably reevaluate some things. But the end goal of what he wants is what any people would want is they want a home. And all he's trying to do is give them that but he's trying to do it by destroying and or taking away the land that already exists for people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he spe- he does he specifically tells Galadriel when they're having their conversation after he's been captured. And he's telling us that he killed Sauron with what the heck I that don't even ask me for explanation because I don't know what what that means or if it's literal. It was like but the worst he, lie ever. No, I think it was a pump fake. Like it was the worst yeah, lie we can't, ever. And Galadriel we can't take saw him through seriously. that. Yeah. But he says just like, to I know her, there's he a says, greater evil behind all of this than just you. So Yeah, that's yeah, she's not happy in that moment. But, but I he actually, tells her, he says Go ahead. About the orcs. I just want to say what he said. He says, as worthy as the breath of life and a home as you are. And that that was the line that I think triggered that empathy from us and clearly not that empathy from Galadriel, who responds with like rage and anger. And she clearly doesn't just want revenge. She is I texted you and I was like, this girl is bitter. And you were like the bitterest. And she, she needs some therapy. She wants to cause pain like she legitimately is a little bit over the line, I think, maybe at this point. Well, and so that's what I found so interesting about that whole conversation. And that's where some things landed with me and some things didn't is one like she stops Hallbrand. She can see Hallbrand is like angry boots whenever he, you know, pulls him to the ground and everything like that. But like and then all of a sudden she's like, oh, yeah, P.S. I want to like murder and, you know, destroy everything that you've ever loved and blah, blah, blah. blah. And it's like it, it just feels like a very big one six like 160 180 from like what she was just telling him like hey you can't do this we need him alive and then all of a sudden she's about to kill him um but their whole dynamic in that moment really made me think that like maybe sauron in body is dead but what keeps him alive is that evil thread of what his legacy is is like what he's left behind the people the orcs the elves like everything that he has touched has been touched and poisoned by his evil and maybe that is what actually quote unquote brings him back like maybe he is in fact dead in body but what exists is is the poison of his evil that has been left behind like that's literally what happens with the ring is that you know Sauron is not there like he's not existing anymore beyond you know a floating eye in the sky but besides that like it's it's the impact of what he left behind that is pervasive that is you know it's it's the darkness that seeps into everyone and in that moment like you see Galadriel literally like you said you know go from zero to 100 in this second and I feel like I wanted a little bit more that showed it was beyond just her anger like that there was some form of influence there behind like what where she was like all of a sudden dipping into that like it was hard for her to come back from like you know you have Gollum that you see over and over again give in to like the voice in his head and then go fight against it and like we know that that is like the evilness of Sauron that's literally just poisoning him day over day so it's like I guess for me like her anger going that quickly like dialing up that quickly to the point of where like I will literally like I want to perform a genocide against these people that you claim that you have like it just it felt a little like off to me it didn't feel warranted or earned in that moment like regardless of how she feels about her brother it just didn't feel like it fit with what she had literally just stopped Hallbrand from doing yeah I mean it's definitely opposite like you said and that I think that's intentional on the story's part is to show us her stopping him but then her almost doing the same thing 
um, herself, it is a little bit much. Like you said, like she does go zero to a hundred so fast and it is something that she is going to need to deal with obviously through whatever version of middle earth, like wartime therapy there is because she needs to figure out what it is that she really is fighting and why, because I think we're leading to a place where I feel like she is going to make a mistake because she's not got her wits about her. Absolutely. Uh, You know, She's going to make a, a, a snap decision that is going to not be the right you, one. It's going to cause could, I mean, some you could sort almost of say You could almost say that what happens at the end of this episode is the mistake, is that she didn't check but Yeah, she could have let Halbrin kill him. She could have. You're right. But she also could have checked to see whether or not that was, in fact, the dagger, like the hilt or whatever. Like, there there was a gap that there. Even- yeah, I don't even want that. That part just drives me crazy. That whole well, thing. but I, but oh. I mean, like there was the setup. Like we saw the setup of what it happens. You just like mm-hmm. there's the gap of time that we made an assumption, which was, I mean, it's smart filmmaking or smart showmaking or whatever. But like it's 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 a thing like that where like as a general, both her and Hallbrand were so blinded by their fury over this person and who they expected to place blame. They didn't be they didn't think beyond the potential treachery that could be happening. And they just literally yep. went with like, we won because we caught him. Cool. Yeah. It's a good point. So yeah. So maybe she is already suffering those consequences then, or, you know, the people that she supposedly loves and is fighting with are fighting for. We get the humans making a, a final stand. They do a pretty good job. They end up repelling the initial attacks and then they discover Oh my gosh, these were the other humans that we have been fighting, not orcs. So I feel like it's a great story moment, dramatic reveal, not the most realistic to me that you wouldn't know you were fighting an orc versus you were fighting a human. I do get that like there's chaos, but in a general sense, a little bit different body composition, typically different sounds. Like, I don't know. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. The point is, They figure out like, oh, he sent a wave of humans to fight against humans. And there's this big kind of emotional crunch that happens to them where they're like not accepting that this is what happened. It sort of kills their their morale. They killed their brothers. Yeah. And it it hurts. And so we see that Adar has fought their tactics with tactics of his own, which this is where I was really enjoying kind of the back and forth. I honestly didn't know where the episode was going. And I like that. I like having that feeling of, oh my gosh, what could I thought next? they were going to win. And then you, after that, we realize like that Numenor is coming. And so we're like, oh, well, we're going to swing back to that. And then, you know, we get the big swing at the end. It's just, it was like a constant. I actually low. didn't, I didn't think that Numenor was going to make it in time. So like I wasn't aware of the one the gap of time and travel. Yeah, oh, like there was jumped. a very big yeah. time jump there <laughs> that I don't think was really well explained. Um, that's why I thought it was the Rohirrim at first. Yeah, that's why I was, like, I was well, like, there's no way the that boats. they could have like made like they were they were on the boats for like a half an hour and we're like, all right, cool, we got it. We put a you know we put a magic spell on it. We just like we cut our time in half. It was great. It was a really short commute today, less traffic. But like I just I felt like there was that jump there. So for me, like I was it very much pulled me out of it where I was just literally like like why are they already on land why are they there oh yeah. okay so the horse oh the horses are going okay oh they're there okay oh okay so they were that close all right i guess the southlands are really close to that port and i just didn't realize it they're not i know <laughs> they're yes, not I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah it was it was a bit of a 
a stretch, but you know, whatever. It's fine. I like it's fantasy. We had it. Bronwyn takes an arrow straight through her chest, like legitimately straight through her chest. This is probably chest, my biggest shoulder. beef. Chest shoulder. shoulder. Yeah, yeah, it's more like a shoulder. This, I, I get it. I get it. I get it from a typical fantasy story, whatever, that the hero has to live. But my goodness, I just didn't buy it at all because they end up saving her. They go to great lengths to make it like bloody and kind of gross. They show like the bubbling blood and they show her getting cauterized and Theo having to do it. Yeah, I don't mind seeing all of that, but I couldn't help but like look around the room at all of the other humans that are dying. And I just, it's one of those why only her situations that I know stories have to do to keep main characters oh, alive yeah. at times. But it's frustrating. stand-ins. But it's frustrating because my brain was like, is, you know, Joe Bob over in the corner who's got an arrow inside of him not worthy of you paying any attention to whatsoever? Like, But also, like, on. you put all those leaves and everything on her and then you're not like, oh, we have some extras. Do you guys want to yeah, use these on exactly. anybody else in this whole house? Exactly. Like, Theo, get get moving. Like, let's go. And I know so, you've only yeah, got it, one leg, but limp just... over there a little faster. And boy, did she recover, too. So she's, like, out of it for, like, a half second, and then the battle goes on, and the next thing you see her, like, walking around all patched up, just good to go at the end. Well, she's got a nice little uh, sling. I, I just, yeah, I just, uh, uh, I mean... If you're going to show me a character that thoroughly speared, I mean, because this was like, I mean, it, it was, looked It was cool. through and through, like from yeah. a, It was all the, like, half the arrow was on one side, half was on the other. I was like, she did. There's no way. No way she's coming back from that. But she did because of romance. So we did get a romantic moment in this, and I would like to know your thoughts on the, the kiss. It's just and- not believable. <laughs> Like, I just literally don't feel anything when I see them together. Like, I can tell that they're trying. I can. Like, I can see that both of them as actors are trying. I just don't, like, I I just, I don't care to root for them. Like, and that's nothing against them. Like, I want them as individuals to, you know, succeed and do whatever. I just don't believe the love that's behind what they're trying to do. And I don't know. I feel like part of that is because, there's so much history we haven't seen between them. So a lot of everything that we're getting are stolen moments or, you know, quick glances or, you know, soft hand touches and stuff like that. We're not getting any, like, this is the first time where we had a full almost declaration moment. And it's just, it to me, like, without any of that history, it's hard for me to, like, be 100 gung, you know, gung-ho on the Bron Radier chain or whatever. So it's just, it's one of those things where I'm just like, I just, I honestly, it sounds terrible. I just didn't feel it was necessary. Like, I feel like their storylines are super strong in and of themselves without that romantic subplot. I'm with you 100% now. And I, and it's, it's unfortunate, but you cannot watch it without comparing it to Aragorn and Arwen. And we had the same thing. Like, th- we don't, we don't get them at the beginning. We are only getting that exact same thing where we're seeing them now stealing moments. The, long time afterward you know they've had a romance in the past and the difference in how you feel immediately about the longing between these two characters for each other it's not even close like these two yeah i i don't know i mean 
I feel like it's maybe that's because they have to keep it a secret versus like Aragon and Arwen. Like they were far more, like at least in the movies, they were far more open about it. Everybody that was around them knew about their history and everything like that. Whereas for Bronwyn, it's more like a scandal kind of thing. So like, I don't know, like the soft moments between Arwen and Aragon were, they were also more intimate. So I think that that's also part of it. Is that like uh, the moments that yeah. we are getting with Bronwyn and Arendir are like, Still the in first. full, they're still in full view of everybody else within the town and the mm-hmm. village. So like we had more intimate moments to connect with Aragon and Arwen, uh, but we also had time that wasn't full of action with them. So like almost every moment that we've had with Bronwyn and Arendir are like in the midst of crisis versus like we had memory callbacks with Arwen and Aragon when things were simpler, when things were easier and they were having like softer, more intimate conversations. So I feel like we're just missing some of that depth from these two in order for me to be like, yes, like you deserve the love that you're quote unquote fighting for. Yep. I I don't feel it either. I mean, that's what it boils down to me is no matter how I can intellectualize it and understand it it's i don't feel it i don't feel any spark yet and and i hope it comes because this seems to be a relationship that they're hinging that on and if if this is the only romance we're gonna get i mean but maybe at least i have Dura and adisa so i can feel good about that we love them. Um, because but there's we love already them. a marriage success story but they're though. already together yeah. yeah that's true i i swear though if they do a galadriel hall brand i will lose my effing mind I will yeah. riot. I will. I don't no, know, man. She doesn't seem not. like she doesn't seem cut out for uh, relationships at this point in her life. Well, neither does Hallbrand, but that's never stopped Hollywood before. That's true. Hey, let's throw these two toxic people together and see what happens. So I want Elendil to have some, but I want him to have human Galadriel. So like, could, that's, well, that's different. But oh my goodness gracious! Well, well, speaking of, he is you know a widow we learned you know we 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 knew that he doesn't have a wife there's a lot in. of secrecy I, I love that his kids are fully grown i'm fully there to be a supportive stepmother it's fine <laughs> there's a lot of secrecy around he her death and yeah. a couple of different scenes where they talk about it and all that we hear is they talk about she it drowned. quote unquote <laughs> yeah so she drowned that's what we know but i am curious about what the backstory for that is going to end up being or if it is that's just it is like i wonder if it's another false flag where they're like building all this intrigue around something only to have it like nope she literally just drowned or like i found it very interesting that she drowned but elendil and or isildur have no problem with being on the water like there seems to be zero ptsd or any like problem with being near the water and like elendil was pushing for isildur to be like a sky or a sea whatever it is. And so I find it very interesting that both of them are super passionate and or secretive about his mom and or wife's death, but neither one of them are like, oh yeah, we have no problem with this water that we're all sealing on that actually killed her. So, but yeah. for all we know, it's going to be you. like, oh, well she, she tripped and fell in a river that was like a foot deep and she drowned. It's going to be something ridiculous like that. Yeah. I mean, it could not have anything to do of importance with the way that she died. It could just be a matter of showing us that there, this is a reason for why Alindil and Isildur have sort of had this distance between them that needs to be closed. Do you think that she died the on the mainland? Because I, like, I've been thinking more and more about the creepy voice that keeps calling Isildur to the mainland. And we obviously don't know anything about his brother, but we know Maybe. that there's something connected between his wife's death and his brother's disappearance or wherever the heck he is. Because they seem to be very, very sensitive topics whenever anybody brings them up. So I'm wondering whether or not 
the creepy voice that he's hearing is like not the ghost, but like the spirit of his mother and where she died. And like he wants closure so that that's what's coming from, like that's what's calling him to the mainland. Very possibly. Yeah. I mean, I think that that would make a lot of sense. And then there's also kind of the the nugget at the end where Alindale and Isildur are having their nice bonding father-son moment with the horses. And he specifically says, I learned about this from your mom. Um, And so it's almost like her becoming a a precursor to eventually what is going to be the Rohirrim and and Rohan being founded. We see the horse lords kind of at the infancy. We also get a little nod to Gondor's creation, which is going to be where Isildur goes, where he makes a mention of longing for, oh, look at those mountains, which is him eventually going to go up in Gondor. So I thought that those were cool, just little foreshadowings um, of the future. I, I loved, loved that. Sorry, I just I love that. What's his name? His friend, the Otto. Uh, I call him Otto. Yeah, Otomo. Yeah, Otomo. 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 Um. Uh. And he was just like, he's like, no, nah, you know, I'm good. I'm gonna stay here and help them because I don't want to fight anymore. That oh, was the other exhausting. guy. That's the other guy. Yeah. yeah. He was like, Otomo that was exhausting. <laughs> yeah. Well, he almost dies. I know, I, but I like so that. did everybody else. Like, so I actually I like love. I loved his reaction where he was literally like, "No, I am not cut out for this." Like, I was cut I, out yeah, for this too. for sea life. I am not cut out for this. I love that that was his reaction because it's realistic. Absolutely, hundred percent agree. I thought that that was great as well because it was not someone just blindly being like, "Yeah, I'm gonna go fight anyway. We're gonna win no matter what." He's like, "No, bro, I'm dead if I do that again, and I would like to live." So yeah, I'm going to help in a pass. different way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was great. He's giving um, very I, I big liked... Samwise energy. Like he's like a, That's, he's, yeah. he's, he's that, he's that cuddle soft cinnamon roll kind of man where he's like, I wanted to help. However, you know, I wanted <laughs> to help. I realize like, no, like that's a common thing in, in, in writing groups. We call men that are on the softer side, but like not necessarily a love interest, but we just call them like a cinnamon roll man. They're a big softy. Like they're, you like they're lovable, but for completely different ways than what the typical, uh, like you know, tall, dark, and handsome would be for like, you know, like generally your uh, love interest is very like sharp cheekbones, has very like dark eyes or dark hair, and it's very like stark. Whereas the Samwise characters are the cinnamon rolls. They're slightly softer. There might be like of a shorter build. Like they're just not stereotypical like love interest men. Um, So we call them cinnamon roll men because um, who doesn't love a cinnamon roll? Fascinating. But like this this guy, like I love that it was a realistic reaction to literally almost not only losing his life, but like seeing everybody that he did care about or that he had traveled or spent all this time with facing these like massive hurdles. And he was literally like, yeah, not for me. I'm good. Well, speaking of that battle, it was awesome. I mean, like we said, we got the shot of the horses being led down the valley which was amazing looking when they come into the town, there was this one move they used at the very beginning where two people on horses each had a hand of a, of a chain, like a giant chain. And they just ran this chain down through like a central corridor of orcs. And it was just, Oh my, those are like the kind of like fantasy battle scenes that I live for. It just, it was a great design would have worked right made sense i thought that that was cool it was fun seeing like this new force come in and help take it over when you thought that adar had gotten the upper hand of course they arrived just in time before they killed everybody after theo gives adar the hilt 
because Theo, he's effing Theo. Yeah, <laughs> that's why Theo exists. So I really Theo, Theo you're slowly getting scene. up to the Kellerblimbor <laughs> like point where I like every time you're on scene, I just want to punch you in the face. Like slowly getting up to Kellerblimbor level. He really is. I guess the alternative would be let Adar kill everyone and hope he doesn't find it on his own. And I understand that would be a hard choice to well, and, you watch know, your mom die. Yeah. Who you just supposedly saved, you know, <laughs> um, and, you know, for what you believe is probably not necessarily something that in and of itself, because what Theo knows of the hilt is that, yes, it's a pretty strong magical weapon, but. He doesn't see the long-reaching impact of it. He doesn't understand the, the the bigger picture, yeah. But also, how does he know where it is? I Yeah, I don't know. I was upset with Arondir twice here. One, Theo shouldn't know where it is. Like, Go bury it in the have, woods or something. He shouldn't have told him. Yeah, I, I, unless he gives it to Theo to go and bury. Either way, it should never have been Theo involved in knowing where that thing is, especially Absolutely. with how what they had to do to like get it away from him, right? And what he did with it, like it, it, that, just very poor decision making. And then the other poor decision making was when he gave it to him at the end, when he thinks he's giving. I was pissed. I was like, "Are you freaking kidding me right now?" Like, I, I get your little he's nice fatherly speech. Yeah, Arondir Kids are dumb. Is not a leader yet. Like I, I just that was that was a poor choice. He's given him this like talk about motivational speech about guilt and loss and how he needs to throw that into the sea or whatever. And that's all because apparently and good. they're much closer to the sea than we originally when we originally. Uh, yeah, thought. apparently so. But like to give him the hilt as a way of like showing him that he can be forgiven. I just. That was the most, it would have been irresponsible, even if it was actually what he thought he was giving him. And I, yeah, I was just, just not happy. Yeah. Okay. So I have a problem with so many, uh, they started moments at the end of this episode, especially, and I think they then realized during editing that they were running out of time and they needed to land the thing. Because what makes me mad is that Theo opens it and realizes that it's not what he thought. And then he doesn't do anything. Like, there's no world in which Theo would open this and realize that it's not the hilt and then not go, Arondir, what is this? Or, like, 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 what am I supposed to do with this? And then, like, to me, then show Waldreg in the keep with that thing. Like, you, you miss that connection of, oh, I've realized what this is. And then Theo was like, okay, well, I guess I'll throw this hatchet into the sea. Like, did he think that like Aaron, Aaron Deer was supposed to like teaching him a lesson and was giving him a fake thing. Like there was a gap in moment there where like two or three storylines didn't connect to where the end showed for each of those pieces. And I was just like, I don't, why? Ugh. Yep. And then, I'm, and then is, that was my, my whole thing too. Well, before we talk about that end point, mm -hmm. I wanted to also mention like Haldar because we never, we we haven't talked about his part in all or how Haldar Halbrand. Oh, I was really like, who the his... heck is Haldar? <laughs> you're like, you're like, is there a new character? I was literally like, wait, did I literally just miss a whole new like I missed a storyline? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, like uh, now Halbrand, who we see show up, join the battle, almost kills Adar. He specifically says, "Don't you remember me?" Very intriguing dialogue adar's like uh no dude am i supposed to remember you and 
Muriel ultimately recommends that he help Bronwyn in leading the the people. And she looks at him. She sees the little um, thing. I don't Sat- know. Satchel is, emblem. Satchel emblem that clearly identifies him. And she says, are you the king we were promised? And he says, yes. And it's a big emotional rousing moment. And I got two conflicting feelings on this. One is I love it. Like, okay, we're getting an Aragorn moment of the reluctant king. He's taking his position. He's going to be part of them. He's ready to lead and ready to fight. Awesome. Yes, let's go. The other part of me is super intrigued by what Adar's reaction was to him and by that line of don't you remember me and his deep, deep rooted disdain for Adar. Now, there's two options I see. One is Halbrand could just have been prisoner and seen his, he could be just a human dude who's a king, right? And it could all be on the surface the way that it's being given to us. <laughs> and he is upset about the way that AR treated him, enslaved him and his people, and just wants revenge as a human king. But there's also this looming question of Sauron. And I am not saying I think that Halbrand is Sauron, but I think that, again, I appreciate how the show is laying seeds in a way that gives me reason to question things. Halbrand asks if Adar remembers him, and he doesn't. And he really wants to kill him. Adar specifically says in the episode that he killed Sauron. Halbrand is only recognized as a king because of that little medallion emblem thing. They see that, and they go, oh, you have that, therefore you are this king that we were promised. No one knows him. No one recognizes him. He is just appointed as the ruler of the Southlands because he has this this thing and says, yes. I am not convinced yet that he is not somehow either possessed by or somehow otherwise being used by Sauron, potentially, etc. I still kind of hope that he just ends up being like one of the normal human kings and becomes like the Witch King or something. I think that'd be really cool. But I like that it's giving us a lot of different potential angles for where his character can go. Yeah, I thought the do you remember me moment was indicative of something, but I don't know what it is yet. Um, it could very well be like what you're saying, but it could also be, you know, he, you know, Adar runs down humans every day for fun. So it, it's one of those things where like, it could just be, he's like, no, am I supposed to? Like, who the heck are you? Like, why? okay. So sorry, I don't remember you. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll do better next time. Like it, there were, there were just these shift in power dynamics within this moment where also we have the component of, um, We've already seen Hallbrand's anger unleash itself, you know, on the people in Numenor and stuff like that. So I just I find it interesting that if 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 Hallbrand is Sauron, I do think that it would be that he's a human possessed by Sauron versus a like his I know because isn't like Sauron can like hide in plain sight and stuff like that. And he like disguises himself. He's like ethereal still. Yeah, I think think, especially with what you said about Adar killing him. Yeah, body of him exactly and so for me the way that i look at it is yes like it could be that he's being possessed by it because we still don't know where that like burst of power happened like where it came from whenever he was in numenor but i'm also like i feel 
like in that moment where they're asking, like, I, I, I feel I, if I was the scriptwriter, I would have rewritten that last moment with Halbrand a little differently. I would one, I would not have had him say yes. I feel like him saying yes was slightly uh, con, like it was the opposite of what his character would have done like an episode ago. Um, so I feel like everything that like the reluctant king is 100% coming across. But I almost wish that she had like maybe like seen the emblem and whispered like, oh, the king we were promised. And then everybody just started bowing to him regardless of whether or not he accepted the crown. Because to me, like when you just say yes, like you're like, okay, I'm not as reluctant really anymore. I'm stepping into, you know, the power that I am supposed to have. So I almost like I would have rewritten that last moment to be a little bit more impactful like with whether he wants to or not this is what these people need from him right now and so I thought that Miriel's all of a sudden also acceptance of like he's gonna lead you to victory like cool you're gonna stay here like there are just these moments where I'm just like does that really connect with like everything that you've set up on the previous few episodes you know what I mean like I feel like I don't know if it's editing choices or script choices but there were just I felt like there were a lot of moments that felt just slightly off kilter for me based off of the character development we've had previously for several of the characters in this episode but I felt like that like there was a that strong moment where then you know Galadriel is about to kill Adar but then Hallbrand stays her hand so if that's the case, like, is that done because Hallbrand wants to be the one to kill him? And like, because he was so close to before, but he really wasn't that close to it. He was just kind of like sitting there seething with a pointed spear over him. But it was like, I felt like Galadriel was almost closer to killing him than Hallbrand was. So I don't know, like there there were just some some hmm moments for me at the, at the towards the end of this episode when it came to like character development. Yeah, I mean, I totally, I, I agree. I mean, like, I don't know if I think it was as much of a switch as you're saying you did but i definitely would have enjoyed maybe a little more mystery still yeah i just think it was that. a shift like i don't i don't know if i would say it was yeah. a character switch aside from galadriel i don't know if i would say it was a character switch but i do think that there was just a shift that i didn't feel had been given the proper like motivation behind it yet mm -hmm. yeah well we we have him and so now he is apparently going to be a leader of some sort with Brom when well uh, well we don't know like all of these decisions were made before <laughs> Pompey so Waldrig gets given a task by Adar he is handed the hilt and this ties into more of like what you were talking about in recent or previous episodes where those like little shrine like areas we see there's a clearer reason for those existing and I thought this was super cool because we learn that this hilt serves as a key to unlock some kind of mechanism that essentially breaks down the dam and releases the water into these underground and who built that who built yeah that? don't like, even that would literally have only been built for one purpose yeah I agree <laughs> I but uh, Sauron influence wise I think the th the interesting thing so it, visually cinematically emotional like it is an awesome thing I think the ending is so cool it is so neat super from just a fantasy storytelling it's like everything has changed Adar is scorching the Southlands and it is becoming what we have always known it to be which is uninhabitable it is now ready for Sauron the interesting thing thematically or story-wise to me is that Adar is not, as far as we can tell, preparing the land for Sauron. That is going to be a consequence of what he is doing, which I find very intriguing. 
and it looked super cool just seeing like like i said pompeii you see like mount doom this volcano we know of is like exploding fireballs are literally hitting and disintegrating people it was glorious <laughs> um i loved it it's awesome although we get the the typical hero shot of fireballs like literally and she's just hitting like- human and galadriel's just in the middle of it just standing still like smoking like being angry <laughs> not even moving i just that was a little dumb but yes you're right from a an actual realistic standpoint of well who would have built all of this and for what purpose i can't think of any other reason than it had to have been built to do this thing and how would he know that that's what that's, would happen that's, that's unless my thing, he is was like, working for sorrow he had so, to have yeah, been yeah yeah there had to have been some underlying connection to where he would understand what the because i mean we also know that all of these orcs have been building these underground tunnels for forever so we already know that they're like astute at burrowing like little evil moles and ferrets but like i feel like this this was indicative of a much larger scheme with why that hilt was important and it wasn't important for any of the reasons that we were led to believe like sticking it in your arm that creates this sword but waldrick just had to use the hilt to you know turn this key and if this key exists like this and it's a relic of a bygone era like that tells me that there's likely one more than one of these hilts that exists like this which means that there's more than one purpose for these hilts that they don't exist as just this key also that would have destroyed waldrick in that keep as well um we don't ever see that um, so if Waldrick survives, I'm calling BS. But um, I, the problem that I have with every single show, movie, documentary, whatever, when the ground is rumbling, why does nobody move? It drives me insane every single time. Like, you <laughs> know that still. you are right next to a giant freaking mountain. You know that that mountain is a volcano. You have talked about that mountain being a volcano. You feel the ground rumbling in an almost godlike fashion. And you look around like, that was interesting. Did you feel that, Herbert? Why, yes, I did, Mabel. I certainly felt something. (laughs) Like, y'all are just taking this very, very casually, especially because you just got done with battle. Would you not think that the ground rumbling could have been an army running towards you on horseback or something? And y'all are just literally like, oh, good day for a picnic. Like, it just drives me insane in in TV shows and movies when they do this. And then, like you said, they wait until fireballs are raining onto their camp before everybody's like, oh, inside the house. It's a fireball. You think it's not going to destroy that wood shanty that you live in? I don't. Yeah, I get it. I get it. I don't know what they would have done differently. Like, just I don't keep know where running. They gone. Just keep running. Yeah. Like, get us. Yeah. Like, the whole point I is mean, get as far away as you, we, you and I live literally in a state surrounded by volcanoes. <laughs> Our goal is to get to higher ground and get as far away from the coast as humanly possible. Yes. That is the I escape did, the, route for The life. reality is we would fail, but most likely, but. The fact that they're not trying is what is frustrating. Yes, exactly. Like, like only, it's not about the failure. It's the fact that you're literally just sitting there like, yeah. Hmm. yeah. That's interesting. Wow. There's a volcano. I've accepted <laughs> hey. my fate. Cool. I'm going to yeah. finish my sandwich. Yeah. A little bit. <laughs> not great. It just, it it's one, it's us- one of those things where like, okay, logically, nobody would just be sitting there. It would be absolute true. chaos and true panic. Yeah, you're right. I mean, those are the details too that I think, you know, set apart great, great storytelling from really good storytelling yeah because you can be good and impactful and emotionally moving or riveting without those level of details can really take things up a notch without sacrificing those other things yeah that we already have experienced and there's a couple of those examples in here in this episode where it's a little bit lacking in those so my hope is that they learn from this right 
this is the first season. These are people. I mean, very few first seasons are perfect. And we, we should hope that they will be able to grow from this. Um, but we shall see, but I overall super enjoyed the episode really, really stinking curious about where we're headed as far yeah. as we only have two episodes season. F too. Yeah. I'm, I'm not a hundred percent sure on what kind of big event we're going to end this season on at this point. And the Ford, you it, think it'll start. And I'm wondering whether or not it'll end with forging, um, of the other rings, um, or at least the beginning like- of that forge, because I don't know what other massive events could have. Like this, to me, felt almost like a mini season finale. Like they could have very easily like pulled the other storylines forward yes. and ended with this, and we all would have been like, okay, what the heck does this mean? So the fact that they chose this as an episode six leads me to believe that like something else big has to happen in order, or like it leading to this. Because for, again, from a, I I understand that I can't be too logical with fantasy, but like. Really, only Galadriel would technically be able to survive what's happening with the volcano. Every other human would be destroyed by what they're inhaling at this point. So it's it's one of those things where, like, if we see all of a sudden, like, Midiel and all of these other, you know, Bronwyn and everyone, I guess Arondir could survive as well. Like, none of them are genetically capable of surviving in the Southlands beyond orcs. Like, that's the whole point is that, like, you know, they're creating this this habitat that very few could survive in that are not adept to it so i'm very interested to see where they take the next two episodes because not many people could survive what literally just happened i suspect it will be a seal door and some of the new norians I mean, taking <laughs> taking them up into the mountains to eventually become the founding of gondor like i feel like that's where we're heading whether they get to the point of calling it that yeah. or not in the next couple episodes the forging thing to me was the natural point for the first season But I feel like there's a lot that's kind of got to take place because we don't really even have a good idea of who might be the the person, the Sauron, that is going to ask Celebrimber to commission the rings, right? Has the forge. We've only gotten one scene of those new forges in uh, Eregion being built. Like that has been completely sidelined for like four episodes now. So obviously take a while to build. Yeah, I mean, Durin and Elrond are going to get back. They're going to get the Mithril, which is going to need to get to Celebrimbor. He's going to need some of that for these purposes. Like, I don't know. I guess all of that could happen, but it, it's going to be, it could just be some really fast-paced storytelling as opposed yeah, to- Yeah, like it's just all of a sudden this was like the crack, like the cocaine. Like we got that, the like, character development. Yeah. Let's move. Yeah. So anyway, I'm curious. Yeah, and I feel like the next two episodes, like the, the hard part is going to be the balance of storylines now because the next two episodes are going to have to focus more on Elrond and Disa and Durin. Um, as like You can't ignore the Harfoots either, but we've also just had a massive event happen in the Southlands. So it's going to be really interesting to see whose storyline they have to pull back on in order for them to give enough screen time to lay up the foundation for the, the last two episodes. So it's going to be really interesting where like, what things slowly fall off because they have to like you can't have an each like the last two episodes can't be dedicated to four storylines well that's i guess technically they've merged one now so they have yeah they merged one we don't know what's going to happen with the stranger something's got to be an event has to take place with him by the end him and the harfoots to kind of more distinctly and then we've got the people that are tracking him the weird Eminem elf and or character. And- yeah. And like, I feel like I mean, we only got them for like two seconds in the last episode. Um, but like what I find very interesting, though, is also like I am interested to see how they 
show this eruption affecting the other components of Middle Earth? Because a volcanic eruption doesn't just impact the land it's directly on. Like that's something where that ash would spread for hundreds and hundreds of miles. So I'm I'm very interested to see how like I, I would be very surprised and or slightly disappointed if there wasn't at least a moment where each of the storylines that we followed, like Disa and Durin, because they're so attached to the earth, would be like, you know, like we felt something move or like the rock is telling me something's happening or something along those lines. The Harfoots should be able to see that because through all the flatlands that they travel, they'd be able to look south and see what is erupting, you know. Even if it's miles away, you can see that from that far ahead. I remember when that uh, mountain erupted in Greenland and like news coverage was insane because you could see it from like all over Western Europe. So I'd be I'd be very interested to see how they try because they have to tie it in somehow. They can't just say like, oh, these other storylines are just completely separate. They don't, you know, have anything to do with the eruption. Like there has to be some logical connection because they're all on the same land. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. We shall see. That just means more dwarves. Give me more dwarves. Love it. Well, that's all I got for this episode. Anything we didn't touch on that you got left to talk about? I hate Caliburn more. That he's not even in the episode. Why just, would you I, add that? What? Just adding it. I just <laughs> you're, want, you're I, a Galadriel. I just want it, just want you're it a to hater. be known. Like Galadriel. to be known. That's, that's, it's a very this punchable is, face. You can go to therapy with her. You guys can share. I am in therapy. That's the difference between me and Galadriel. I'm, <laughs> oh. working, on my, I'm working on my issues. <laughs> I love it. All right. Well, thank you. This has been great. Aaron, where can people find you on social media if they would like to comment about this episode or find more of the stuff that you do? You can find me at essentially Aaron pretty much everywhere, E-R-Y-N-N-E. You can find me online, Instagram. Hit me up. There's a link to essentiallyaaron.com in the show notes of every episode, which will get you links to all of her other stuff as well. And you can find me on pretty much every social media channel at Aaron L. White. That's A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E. Also on the Feel and Film official channels. And all those links are also always in all of the show notes. So we don't have to just repeat them out loud. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. Please share the episode, rate the podcast. We love that. Thank you. We'll be back next week. See you.